Hey there, I just wanted to give you a heads up that today's conversation is for adults only, and you'll want to grab some earbuds before tuning into this week's interview. On that note, let's get into the show. You cannot expect or wait around for passion to just show up on your doorstep. I mean, anything in life that you think is worth doing that's going to give you meaning. Think of like any hobby you might have. Like you have to carve out the time to do it. It's not like, let's say you enjoy painting. You can't just sit around and wait for a canvas and a palette to land on your doorstep. Like you got to go to the art store. You got to get your supplies. You got to set up. You got to mix your colors. Like there's a little bit of a struggle phase that shows up. And I think that for some reason, when it comes to passionate sex, we think that it should just happen with the flip of a switch. And it just doesn't work like that. Hey, friends, welcome to The Good Life with Michelle Lamoureux, a show for women in midlife who want to live happier, healthier, and more meaningful lives. I'm your host, Michelle Lamoureux, a self-love coach and the author of Design a Life You Love. And together, we're going to be doing just that. Each week, I bring on world-class experts, best-selling authors, leading entrepreneurs, and also do solo casts with the intention of inviting you to get connected to what you really desire from your life. This show is produced with love every week. There's inspiration and actionable tips in every episode because I want to see women playing a starring role in their lives instead of living on the sidelines. Be sure to join the Good Life Community newsletter over at thegoodlifecoach.com for more inspiration and tips to live your best midlife. And make sure you're following the show on your favorite podcast player. I'm so glad that you're here. Hey friends, it's Michelle Lemereau and welcome back. Today we're going to be talking about intimacy in relationships. Joining us is Dr. Emily Jamia, who's a sex and relationship therapist based in Houston, Texas. With over 15 years of experience, she's helped thousands of people create connection and cultivate passion. When she's not seeing clients, Emily researches the relationship between flow and sexual satisfaction. She also serves as an expert speaker for both public and private events, and her expertise has been featured in Oprah Magazine, CNN, USA Today, BBC, NBC, and many other outlets. Emily hosts the popular Love and Libido podcast, writes columns for healthy women in psychology today. Well, welcome. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, I'm this is a topic that people have requested to have on the show. And I do a Monday musings and somebody said, could you cover this? And I thought, I can't, but I'm sure I can find somebody that could. Like you don't want my <laughs> advice on this stuff. Um, but um I think a really important place to start is understanding sort of a foundational understanding of intimacy versus sex. Because when I think about it, I feel like you can have sex without intimacy and intimacy without sex, but the words are sort of used interchangeably. I'm just, uh, give us your lens on this and sure. so we can kind of frame the conversation. Yeah. Yeah. You can try, you can try to have intimacy without sex and sex without intimacy. But actually, if you look at the research, a lot of times people who 
claim that they're having totally casual, you know, non-emotional, no strings attached sex. If you like really ask them pointed questions, you'll find that they are seeking some kind of emotional connection with the person. So I find it to be extremely rare that we put sex on one end of the spectrum and emotion, you know, that we think of it as something that's completely separate from sex. And, and I often find that people who try to totally separate the two are way less sexually satisfied. Oh, I love this. So can we use sex and intimacy in like, can we interchange that as one word and set in essence? Like, is it expressing the same thing in your opinion then? I think so. Yeah, yeah. I can. Yeah. Okay. Sure. Okay. And so how do you define it then? Or is that just too broad of a question? How do I define like sexual intimacy? Yeah. What is yeah. it? What what is it? <laughs> we are. <laughs> no, it is it is almost too broad to define because you can have sexual intimacy just within yourself. You can have mm-hmm. it with another person. I think that even you know within yourself and or with another person, there can be all different ways that your sexuality is expressed and experienced. You know, sex is so much more than just a thing we do with our bodies. It's an opportunity not just for emotional connection but also self expression. You know, when we think more broadly of what encompasses our sexual identity, there's, you know, our sexual orientation, romantic orientation, what kinds of preferences we have, our gender identity, our gender expression. I mean, there's just so many pieces to the puzzle, which is what I think makes sex such an interesting thing to help people with and to study and to write about and think about. Yeah. And I'm also wondering if that's why there's so much confusion too. Or just, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's a topic that I think, I don't know the way that it's discussed sometimes or even portrayed in movies and in, you know, TV shows. It's funny, even all the sitcoms, every focus of every episode of Friends, I think there is focus on sex and even um, Big Bang Theory. We just started watching that. I know it's been out for a long time and uh, they refer to it as coitus on the show. But yeah. like every episode, there's a reference to sex. It's like an obsession, it seems like in right. some ways. And like people aren't necessarily having, they're like confused about how to have a healthy relationship to it. And I love that you said it could even just be like within yourself. Totally. And I think especially in Hollywood on movies and TV, you know, there's such a caricature when it comes to how sex is portrayed. You know, a lot of times you see, you know, women who only care about the emotional element or men who only care about the physical element, or there's this narrative that, you know, men need sex and women need emotional connection. And the fact is all humans (laughs) need emotional connection and sex is one of the ultimate ways I think that we can connect emotionally with another person. You know, when I'm working with heterosexual couples and let's say it's the male partner, for example, who has higher desire, I have yet to have a guy sit in my office and say all he cares about is getting off. No, like he wants to connect emotionally with his partner and sees sex as an opportunity to do so. So I think we have to be really careful when we internalize some of the messages that we get from Hollywood. And it applies not just to gender stereotyping, but also I think in Hollywood, 
we, without realizing it, get the message that sex is just for the young and able-bodied. And that couldn't be further from the truth. I mean, we know that people across every age demographic are sexually active. And so there's just so much more to sex, I think, than what we see depicted on screen. Yeah, I love this. And when couples come or individuals come to see you, obviously without getting too personal, what are some of the challenges that you're seeing in your practice, especially as maybe for people who are more midlife, since that's my audience, like what what are some of the conversations you're having, the challenges? So by far the most common issues that couples come into therapy with is issues with having a discrepancy in desire in their relationship, meaning one person wants sex Mm. more or less than the other one. And a lot of times people who have lower desire are the ones that are pathologized as having being the one with the problem. Either they have self-identified as being the one with the problem or their partner has identified them as being the one with the problem. But, you know, in most relationships, there's going to be a little bit of a higher desire and lower desire partner. The idea is getting to a place where the gap isn't so wide that it feels unmanageable or that it's creating conflict in your relationship. And there can be plenty of reasons why someone has a much higher libido. Maybe the person with lower desire is taking on, you know, maybe they both have full-time jobs. And in addition to work, the person with lower desire is like doing all of the household and child manage, you know, children managing and all of that carrying the mental load. So it's really like they're working two jobs. Well, come to find out if, if we start, you know, <laughs> offloading some of that to the person who has all this free time, that in and of itself can kind of narrow the gap. So, so that's definitely something to think about. And, you know, as it relates to midlife, I think what I see you know, having the biggest impact are some of the hormonal changes, particularly for women who are very, very, um, you know, like perimenopausal, premenopausal, or who are going through menopause and just the toll that that can take on libido. Yeah. Yeah. They, I had a doctor on who was explaining that the vaginal dryness and things that are coming from the drop and the like and estrogen. estrogen. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. And so people come in to, to get help with that. What do you recommend for that? Well, I mean, I think we just have to take a step back and look at it more holistically and how it's viewed just in the broader social cultural landscape. You know, I think that there's always been such an emphasis on men's health and, you know, only recently are we starting to pay closer attention to women's health. You know, it was really easy for guys to just pop the little blue pill, take a Viagra, or they can go to any doctor pop-up clinic and get a shot of testosterone. But it's like, what about women? Hormones are important for women too. So when it comes to women who are dealing with some of the hormonal changes during menopause, you know, of course I, I work with their MD to try to get them on a hormonal regimen that, you know, helps balance some of that out if they're a good candidate, which the majority of women we know now are, um, that's really important. But I also work with them on managing some of the emotional and psychological effects that come about from going through this major change, because, you know, it can totally impact the way we see ourselves and our sense of self. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, some of the body image changes that happen during menopause. And so I work a lot with women on, on trying to embrace and work with some of the changes that are happening in their bodies. And, and that in and of itself can be a, a process. Um, you know, but again, we know from the research that, you know, women and men are capable of having great sex through the lifespan. So I think that that's important to remember. 
Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that. And and absolutely there's the the medical system is geared towards empowering the men with whatever they need and taking them yeah. seriously. And yeah. all the docs that come on and say, yeah. yes, it's true, women are gaslit and you're told to take an antidepressant and have a glass yeah. of wine and just just suck ignore. Yeah, suck it up. Suck Terrible. it up. Yeah, yeah. It's it's yeah. not okay. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, let's talk about, you know, you talked about in a long-term relationship or a relationship, let's say there are kids in the mix or people working hard and one is taking on more responsibility than the other. And, you know, maybe the intimacy is fading. Yeah. How, give us some advice around, you know, how do you start rekindling some of that, you know, and uh, maybe other than having maybe somebody do the laundry for you. <laughs> okay. Million dollar question. So, you know, I think that we forget how important it is to actively nurture our relationship, not just emotionally, but sexually too. We think that if sex doesn't happen the way it did in the honeymoon phase of the relationship, that, you know, it's just not going to happen. And so it's important, I think, when we're conceptualizing the way desire shows up in a relationship that we understand that there can be a difference in what we refer to as spontaneous desire, which is that like, kind of, I feel horny, I'm in the mood, I want to have sex versus respect, um, responsive or receptive desire, meaning that we don't really feel desire until there's some degree of an emotional connection with our partner. We feel our partner is attuned to us or has taken care of our emotional needs in some way and a little bit of sexual arousal, meaning that the desire for sex may not come until you get things going. And that is where cultivating intimacy really comes into play. When you look at the research on couples who sustain really high levels of sexual satisfaction over the course of long-term relationships, we see some very common themes and top of the list is that they prioritize it just as they would anything else that's important to them in life. And so Mm. you cannot expect or wait around for passion to just show up on your doorstep. I mean, anything in life that you think is worth doing that's going to give you meaning. Think of like any hobby you might have. Like you have to carve out the time to do it. It's not like, let's say you enjoy painting. You can't just sit around and wait for a canvas and a palette to land on your doorstep. Like you got to go to the art store. You got to get your supplies. You got to set up. You got to mix your colors. Like there's a little bit of a struggle phase that shows up. And I think that for some reason, when it comes to passionate sex, we think that it should just happen with the flip of a switch and it just doesn't work like that. And Mm so couples who maintain passion know that (laughs) they know the truth. They know that great sex is something that they have to prioritize and plan for and cultivate and all of those things. Okay. Let's talk about, um, the scheduling and all of that and cultivating, you know, because it sounds like, okay, it's totally normal if you don't have spontaneous desire at every, any moment that your partner or you have this, like, you know, all of a sudden, you know, match. Um, If there is a, yeah. How do, how do we just any, let's get into that. Any. Okay. So here are the three most important pieces that people need to know when it comes to planning sex. 
Number one, we use the word planning, not scheduling. I just feel, and this is just me, that the word planning has a much more positive connotation. I feel like you plan a party, you plan a picnic, but you like schedule a colonoscopy. Like that just doesn't, <laughs> I don't know. So I much prefer the word plan because okay. planning gives me the idea that there's positive anticipation and buildup and excitement towards right. it. Right. Yeah. Number one, I'm a stickler okay. for language. The language we use can be loaded with meaning. We don't even realize it. So number one is we plan. Number two is you can think of it more as a plan B, a fallback plan in case maybe you don't kind of come together at other times, let's say throughout the week or throughout the month. So it's not like you're shutting yourself off to sex except for 8 p.m. on Wednesday night because that's when it's on the calendar. You want to keep yourself open to it and see if there are other opportunities for connection and still you know, you can send a 30 text message or take a shower together. I mean, you want to stay connected, but let's say things don't culminate in a, you know, full-blown sexual act the way we typically think of it, then at least, you know, you have your fallback plan. Okay. So it's more of a plan B than a plan A. And then finally, I always remind people that when you were dating, you were planning it. You just didn't call it that, but everybody knew what was going down <laughs> on Friday night and you shaved all the things and you got, wore the good lingerie and the cologne. And, you know, there was a lot of prep that went into what was happening at the end of the Friday night, but it was like, Oh, I'm just going to pick you up and take you to the movies. But everyone knew like what was going to happen after the movie. So you were already <laughs> planning it. This is not a new thing that you're doing it. It just feels different because now you're with each other day in, day out, but it's the same mentality. So those are my three pieces of advice. And if we're going to add a bonus or fourth piece of advice, I mean, again, cannot emphasize this enough. You, We plan everything else in our lives that's important to us, whether it's planning time to go to the gym or planning lunch with a friend or, you know, the things end up on our calendar. But for some reason, we think sex should just kind of magically happen. And we've wow. got to change the way that we think about it. Okay. So talk to us about frequency. How important is regular sex with your partner? It sounds like you're saying it's really important, but I don't want to speak for you. I mean, what's that? Is there such a thing as a healthy sex life? I mean, what, what would that look like besides the making the commitment to plan and connect beyond that? Sure. Yeah. So quality is more important than quantity. Number one, I think that's so important. Um, Emily Nagowski has a quote. She says, Pleasure is the measure. So how pleasurable the experience is for you and your partner is the measure of how good or bad it is. Um, and really every couple has to determine what is going to be quote unquote healthy for them. That might look different from the neighbors next door and that's okay. Just because you saw on Dr. Phil or Oprah or Cosmo that happy couples have sex X number of times per week or per month or whatever, you know, you just can't really think of it that way because yeah. also sex ebbs and flows. I mean, there are going to be in times in life where you're having more or less sex. And again, this is something that couples who sustain high levels of satisfaction, they kind of learn to ride the waves, you know, and they say, okay, hey, we've kind of been in a drought for a while. Like, what do we need to do to boost things up again? And they take steps to do that. Or they're having sex all the time. And one person's like, I just can't get anything done. Like they have no <laughs> conversation. Um, you know, but people do like numbers. They like to know what's normal. There right. was a study that was done a few years back that looked at heterosexual couples and it measured 
frequency of like penile vaginal intercourse among different age groups and like how long couples had been married. And, you know, if we're looking at couples in the midlife group, I think on average, they had sex like a couple of times per month, like two to three times per month on average. Um, but I mean, again, it's one of those things that, that may work really well for some people and other people can be really happy and satisfied having more or less sex. So it's something every couple has to determine for themselves. Okay. This is really, really good. Um, what happens you'd mentioned, you know, people come to see if one partner has more desire than the other Mm -hmm. layer and maybe there is the dropping hormones and painful sex where, I mean, there's like a sort of things going on. Um, does that require outside help or is that stuff that you sort of can try to manage internally with just you and your partner? That seems more complex, especially if there's physical pain. Right. Definitely. So, I mean, what happens for women during menopause is a drop in estrogen and we need estrogen to maintain vaginal elasticity and lubrication. So without that, it sort of is like a use it or lose it. If you're not planning to do any hormone replacement or you can't, for some reason, um, it is important that if you're not having pretty regular intercourse and using plenty of lube that you invest in, in like a vaginal dilator set so that you're putting something inside the vagina and kind of, you have to treat it like you would any other muscle. It's going to atrophy if it's not used, especially when you're postmenopausal. And so, um, I think that that's something that couples can do on their own. I mean, again, lube is your friend (laughs) throughout any stage of life, but of course, if you are experiencing low estrogen and having vaginal dryness and pain, but unless there is, you know, a medical reason why you can't tolerate hormones, I usually recommend women do work with an MD to help them find a good balance. Men have issues too, as they age, you know, they can, their erections maybe aren't as firm as they were when they were in their twenties and thirties. Um, you know, men can experience erectile dysfunction more frequently as they age. They can experience um, delayed ejaculation, meaning it's harder for them to have orgasms as well. So this is not, you know, these these physical changes, sexual changes are not just happening to women. They happen to men too. Yeah. Yeah. So if it's declining hormones for women, men's going, the men are going through their own stuff too. Yeah. That's yeah. helpful. And that could also create stress because if one partner is having that and it's your male partner, let's say, and they're not interested because there's embarrassment. Because I think that's the thing. We don't really talk about it as a culture. When it is discussed, I feel like it's discussed in this sort of silly kind of unhealthy way. I don't know, all the language used around it. There's nothing about it that seems sort of appealing. And then maybe you just don't talk, you don't want to talk about it. So you just push it off to the side. Yeah. I think one of the most important sexual skills that couples can have is a willing to a willingness to adapt to changes. Hmm. You cannot expect sex to look the same as it did in the honeymoon stage when you're trying to get pregnant, when there's a baby in the bassinet next to you, when you've blown your ACL, when you got young kids at home, when you're empty nester, like the kind of sex you have is going to evolve with time. And so I think one of the most important sexual skills couples can have is through open communication and flexibility and a growth mindset, find new ways of interacting erotically with each other to accommodate whatever, you know, roadblock or change may be there at any given time. 
Yeah. And now I'm going to talk about just specifically, and I don't know if it would be called heterosexual or heteronormative relationships, but is sex, sex isn't always just penis and vagina. I learned from a urologist recently who came on my show. I was like, I never really thought about that. So sex doesn't actually have to involve that, right? No, not at all. I, I really, you know, I want to move people away from thinking of sex as having a beginning, middle and an end, because a lot of times people slip into sex, you know, begins with a male erection or begins with kissing or whatever it is, kind of culminates in the male orgasm, right. And always includes intercourse. And that's a very narrow way of thinking about sex. And if we have sex the same way every single time, we are going to get bored. Um, I like people to think of sex as this sort of constant, you know, erotic charge that is always there in the relationship and that it's something you can kind of turn the heat up and down kind of whenever you want and how far you turn the heat up is up to you. But there are lots of things you can do that are sexual that don't necessarily include intercourse or end with the male orgasm. Yeah. I think that's an important, because it was sort of eye-opening to me. I guess I just never thought about it. Obviously, you know, it's just the way, like you said, language matters, words matter. Um, You know, I was reading something or heard something recently where they were saying, um, don't call your partner like mommy and daddy. You know, once you become a parent, like my husband and I always have done that, you know, now we have a dog and it's like, Uh you know, where's mommy, you know? Oh, oh, yeah. Yeah. Versus Uh where's Michelle or your partner's name. I I thought that was sort of interesting. Do you think Uh that there are other subtle things? Like, do you agree with that? And do you think there are other subtle things that we can be doing to be seeing our partner? Like, you know, the way you talked about the legs were shaved, you know, I think when we're dating, you, you, you're not worried about anything, you know? Uh, I mean, you're, you're, you're thinking about everything and now you're just like, whatever. Yeah. You know, I think that is really interesting that you want to, you know, you want to be cognizant of what, elements of your partner's sense of self, either they're cutting off from or shaving down versus maybe what you're cutting off from them or shave whittling down, because we have so much that makes us who we are. And if we start to see ourselves or our partner starts to see us only in one role all of the time, that can definitely impact how we experience sex. You know, I always tell people that you cannot separate your sexuality from your individuality. Anything that makes you who you are is going to show up in the way that you express yourself sexually. So if you are in like mom role from sunup to sundown, it can be hard to transition into this like erotic sexual goddess. (laughs) (laughs) Even though she's there, she's there. there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So Definitely. I think if those sorts of things, if you find that, Hey, like they're always calling me, referring to me as mom or dad, like who else am I? Um, that would be a good conversation to have. Now, if that's like a sexual kink and it's like, call me daddy or whatever, I mean, hey, more power <laughs> to you, you got to figure that out for yourself. <laughs> yeah. It's just interesting. Cause I was just thinking of the subtleties of all of that, you know, like I was like, Oh, I never would have thought about how you address your partner and does right. that make a difference in how you're seeing them or how you're feeling about yourself? Um, really? I know that you love talking about how we can use flow state science to enhance sex life. So this is a flow state science is totally new term. Never heard of this. Uh, talk to us more about um, what it is and how we can use it. 
Sure. So a flow, a state of flow is something that was really first identified by psychologist Mihai Csikszentmihalyi, um, Hungarian name. I'm not even going to try to spell it, but he noticed that when people were in a state of flow, when they were engaged in an activity where there was kind of a loss of space of time, they were totally absorbed, there was intrinsic motivation, maybe they were doing the activity just because the sake of doing the activity gave them so much enjoyment. So think of like a surfer who describes being at one with the wave or your friend who is addicted to the runner's high. Like all of those states are when we're in a state of flow. It's like a heightened state of consciousness in a way. And so I noticed over the course of my 15 years working as a sex and relationship therapist that I could help couples overcome things like low desire, erectile dysfunction, difficulty with orgasm. And for some people that was enough, but a lot of times I started having people come back who were still wanting more. They're like, okay, we're kind of, we're having more sex or the quality of our sex is improved, but we want sex that makes us feel effortless, that makes us forget our own name, that we completely lose ourselves in the experience. And I realized that what they were describing was wanting a state of flow wow. during sex. Mm. So I turned to the literature to see what I could find as it relates to experiencing a flow state during sex. And I came up completely blank. Like there was not a single study that looked at the relationship between flow and great sex. Now, meanwhile, I was in my own honeymoon stage. <laughs> and at this point, you know, I'd seen the good, the bad, and the ugly when it came to sex. And I was not going to like settle for mediocre sex for the rest of my life. And so I'm like, I got to do everything in my power to figure out how to sustain like this honeymoon style sex over the course of a long-term relationship. So I initiated a research study and, you know, I had to include people who are only over the age of 25 because I wanted to rule out like young adult hormone driven sex. They had to be married for over a year because I wanted to rule out just honeymoon stage sex and they couldn't be pregnant or have a baby under one because we all know what that can do to an otherwise good sex life. And I administered a couple questionnaires that looked at um, how satisfied they were with the sex that they were having and a flow state questionnaire to see if that was what they were experiencing during really high states of satisfaction. And I found out that it was. And so I found that people who had really high levels of sexual satisfaction were experiencing this state of flow, this kind of sense of unity, merger, transcendence, time seemed to speed up or slow down. They were just kind of this two become one phenomenon that happens during great sex. So then I called them up to see what exactly that they were doing to attain this high level of satisfaction over the course of the long-term relationship. Um, and really, when we look at what people do to get into flow in any other activity, we can apply the same principles to get into flow during sex. So it is doing things like prioritizing, which not to beat a dead horse, but that's one of the most important things you can do. Um, it's a willingness to go through a little bit of struggle. We know that like, Take a surfer, for instance, they have to spend time waxing their surfboard, wait around for the right wave, or a musician has to tune their instruments, or an artist has to mix their colors. Like there's some steps you have to take before you, you know, get fully immersed in the image that you're painting, or you catch that perfect wave, or you jam out with the other musicians in your in your band. So the same principle applies to sex. I think that we expect to go from zero to 60 in the blink of an eye, but there's like a little bit of warm up that has to come about. And um, 
I think a lot of times people give up or they think, you know, it's just not going to be a good sexual encounter if that feeling of flow doesn't happen right away. So Mm. I work with people on that. Um, And really, I believe that with the right mindset and tools, every couple can experience a state of flow during sex, even over the course of long-term relationships. So that's really the focus of my research writing and and the book that I'm working on. I was going to ask you, well, you're going to have to come back on when the book is out because we'll all read it and then we'll like take this sort of I don't know, 101 yeah, it's a podcast like too. Full episode on it. So yeah. Oh yeah. No, that'll be fantastic. phenomenal. Well, no, it's fantastic and so interesting. Um, what if a woman isn't feeling sexy or desirable anymore? I mean, you talked about that a little bit before, but what are some things that she can do to get reconnected to herself? Because I feel like so much of it is, I mean, you're bringing yourself into, yeah, into I, the room and you want to feel good about yourself or connected to that goddess, if you will, it doesn't even have to be the goddess, at least a little bit more of your feminine side. And yeah, I think it's so important that we as women learn how to take our sexuality into our own hands rather than relying on our partner to turn us on, like thinking of what we might need to do to turn ourselves on. I mean, I, as a sex therapist and someone who's writing a book about sex, like I'm thinking about sex all the time, but most people aren't. And so it may mean occasionally reading some erotica or even looking at porn. There's actually some great porn websites that are ethical and are made by women for women. So, you know, that is out there as well. Although women seem to really like erotica and kind of conjuring the images themselves. Um, you know, I think a lot of women stop self-pleasuring for whatever reason. And so I think there are tons of things you have to think about what it is that's going to make you feel sexy, whether that's, you know, exercising or wearing lingerie or, you know, trying something new. I mean, all of those things can bring about sexual energy. There are things that you can do, I think, to reconnect to your sexuality that aren't necessarily directly sexual. Like, For instance, we know that um, self-expansion, like learning something new or trying something new can be a libido booster for people who have, you know, lost their desire for sex. Um, Doing something that gets a little bit of adrenaline flowing can help. So those sorts of things I think can help a lot to, for women, you know, when they're struggling to reclaim their sexuality. Um, I'm going to ask a question that I wasn't planning on, but as you're talking about that for you know everyone's got their whatever their comfort zone or whatever or their their mindset around it for me i think that thinking about someone else or whatever within the sexual context with somebody you love to me that's mental like i feel like that's cheating in some way so i don't but i feel like in the world that you work in it seems like more stuff is on the table. Can you just touch upon this? Because I think sure. I'm probably not the only one who's curious about a professional's because, input. Yeah. Yeah. So just because you already ordered doesn't mean you can't look at the menu is what I say. Um, no, I think that, well, first of all, every couple has to define what monogamy and fidelity means for them. There's a lot of gray area yeah. now, but fantasy is complex completely normal. Um, There was a really comprehensive study that came out, I think in 2017, where they interviewed something like 20,000 people across every demographic in the US and 97% of them fantasized sexually on a regular basis. And 
um, romantic sex was on the top eight styles of sexual fantasy, but most people were not fantasizing about their beloved on a bed of roses. They were thinking about all kinds of other things. So the way I explain this to people or what I say is that, you know, I think when we shut off our brain's capacity for mental imagery, like animals can't mentally image the way that we can. They can't fantasize the way that we can. That's something that is uniquely human. And when we cut ourselves off from that, I think we're limiting a potentially really exciting component of our sexuality. Um, You know, we fantasize about all kinds of things. I mean, winning the lottery, going on a cool vacation. It doesn't mean that, you know, um, there's anything wrong with us. Fantasy is normal. And I think it's important to lean into sexual fantasies. Um, There was a book that came out several years back by Wendy Maltz that looked at women's sexual fantasies in particular and all the different reasons why women use fantasy, whether it's to help increase their desire, help them build arousal so that they can orgasm more easily. Or, you know, sometimes maybe their partner's out of town for a couple of weeks. And, you know, it's a great way to to bridge that gap that I was talking about earlier, when there's maybe a higher desire or lower desire partner, your partner's unavailable for some reason, or maybe you're really in the mood, but they aren't like, why not tap into a fantasy? It can be a lot of fun. And, and at the end of the day, fantasies are totally safe. They are always accessible. They are free. Um, so I'm, I'm pro fantasy. <laughs> I had a feeling you would be. That's why I asked. Um, You have written, you've traveled to many parts of the world and noticed that especially in more developing countries, people seem to find happiness and meaning in a way that your clients weren't, who had more means and abundance and resources. I was just curious when I read that on your your website, Hmm. what did you find out about, because part of the work that I do is for women to live happier, healthier, and more meaningful lives. It's really, that's at the heart of what I do. It's most important piece, I think, is to find that meaning, that expression, your purpose, whatever it is that lights your heart. Like I know you paint, like if somebody has been putting that aside and they know that's a part that gives the meaning, like rekindle that. So I was just curious, um, anything that you learned? Uh, I think think this was, you know, a time in my career, so much of my training and focus had been on trauma and trauma recovery. And, um, and that is a such an important piece of the puzzle. I mean, that talk about like removing shame so that people can, you know, feel pleasure and excitement when it comes to sex. We need all of that. But yeah, through my travels, I'm like, these are people who have been dealt a pretty bad hand of cards in a lot of these countries. Yet there was a stronger sense of community, I think. And they they had found ways to feel joyful despite not having a lot of the things that we have here in the US. So I started to shift um, a lot of my focus from trauma to positive psychology, which flow state science is a part of positive psychology and look more at the things that really give our lives meaning, Hmm. um, and how we can find happiness without, you know, forking out 10 grand. There's such an economy of wellness these days, especially here in the U S and it can be a total money pit, but sometimes I just think that simpler is better. Um, I'm a big proponent of like simplifying life. <laughs> I think that um, I, I'm kind of like, 
I don't want to go so far as to say I'm like anti the self-care movement. Like we need self-care, of yes. course. But yes. I think sometimes we are doing it, we're, we're forgetting that we can find probably more joy and happiness in close, meaningful relationships with other people and live in such a me world these days. Our society has become increasingly individualistic. And I'm not surprised that we have some of the highest rates of depression and anxiety as a result. So so that was kind of it. And, And I think for my work and the couples that I treat, it's like finding ways just to help them connect in their relationship without all the fluff. You know, do you really need to live in like a McMansion if it means you have a one hour commute every day? And then you don't like, what's the point if you don't have quality time spent with one another, if you can't come home and like, you know, rough and tumble play with your kids. And I just, I think that's, what's going to make our lives meaningful. And we have to think of how we can reduce stress if we want to connect sexually. And I think we add so many things to our plate that just make us more stressed out. I love it. Um, we've covered a lot today. I mean, and you will come back on, like I'm fascinated now and we need to hear about <laughs> your book when it's ready, but anything I didn't ask that you really want to make sure the women take away from this conversation? I think I just want to emphasize again, that great sex is possible through the lifespan. Um, you know, one of the one of my favorite studies that looked at couples who have great sex, the first time this person, re- her name is Peggy Kleinplatz, the first time she researched this, she didn't even bother including people in her study who were under the age of 65 <laughs> because she knew that like, you know, I think the older we are, the more self-confident we are, the less inhibited we are. And I think we can use that to our advantage. If we apply that mentality to sex, it's like the world is our oyster. There's so many things we can do. So I think that's a really important takeaway. I love it. And I've loved this conversation. I just like to ask for fun how you define a good life. I like to wrap it up asking my guests that. I think a good life is a meaningful life. Like if I had to really narrow it down. It's, it's about, I mean, it's like what my logo is, right? Connect, create connection and cultivate passion. That's what I think a good life is. Oh, I love it. Create, connect. And what was it? Say it again. Create, create connection and cultivate passion. Oh, I love that. I um, want everyone to share this interview with a friend. I think that oftentimes we're not having these conversations. It feels uncomfortable. I don't know. We don't even know how to. We don't know who to reach out to. Um, So I think it's important to be having them or just to have some understanding around it. So please do share that. And all of the show notes for today will be over at thegoodlifecoach.com. Where should I direct people to find you? Dr. Yeah. Across all the social media channels at Dr. Emily Jamia. That's Dr. Emily Jamia. My website is emilyjamia.com. I've got online workshops there that are, it's designed for couples who are feeling emotionally and sexually disconnected. So it's like a do it at your own pace. And I'm happy to give your listeners a code to get half off. So you can just put the code half off and you'll get it for 50%. And um, yeah, there's tons of other stuff on there, all my blogs and I've got meditations and fun things. So check it out. Oh, I love it. So the code would be literally H-A-L-F, half off. Uh-huh. Yep. yep. Okay. All right. And I'll have that linked over at thegoodlifecoach.com. So you can easily find Dr. Jamia's website and then go over if you're interested in pursuing oh, it and further. If you're a podcaster, check out my podcast too, Love and Libido. Yes. Mm-hmm. And that's on your website too, which I saw. So, but yeah. I can link that as well. So thank yeah. you. This has been such a great conversation. I really Absolutely. appreciated connecting with you today. Sure. Me too. Thank you for having me. Thanks. 
Thanks so much for tuning in today. I hope you gained some new information or inspiration for your life. That is that the essence of this show is to really wake up to what's possible for you to reclaim your beautiful voice and to really learn to love and prioritize yourself. So if you gained any value from any of the conversations you've tuned into, make sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast player. You can do that right now on your phone. And please do consider leaving a rating and review if you have yet to do so on Apple Podcasts. It's actually how more women can find the show. And I really want to grow a community of women who are loving themselves and living full on. So thank you as always for tuning in. And I look forward to reconnecting with you next Wednesday. Bye for now. This podcast is presented for entertainment and educational purposes only. Any information provided is not intended to be a substitute for medical, mental health, or other professional advice. Seek out your trusted healthcare provider or other qualified professional for all matters dealing with your health and well-being. Any opinions or information provided by a guest are their own and not those of Michelle Lamoureux or the company.